Welcome to another session with the Market Dominance Guys, a program about the innovators, idealists, and entrepreneurs who thrive and die in the high-stakes world of building a startup company. We explore the cookbooks, guidebooks, and magic beans needed to grow your business. So let's get going. Listening to the Market Dominance Guys with your host, Chris Beal of Connect and Sell and Corey Frank of Uncommon Pro. You know, you can learn a lot about market dominance by sitting in the sand and watching surfers on the beaches of Southern California as they hone their craft in the waters. And as a landlocked kid from the mean streets of Milwaukee, I would often visit the beaches of Venice, California every summer and attempt to ride the relatively modest waves of the warm Santa Monica waters. And time and again, I would bite it uh, and tumble into the surf, learning a little bit each ride about balance and about the feel and the connection to the board beneath you and about timing. And later, committing to a career in sales revealed many of the same techniques that I tried to master as a Midwest kid who first learned to surf. Certainly meeting with the sales version of Point Break's Surfmaster Bodie, my partner in the podcast here, Chris Beal, over 15 years ago, has helped guide me in search of both riding the perfect wave and executing the perfect sales call. And in this episode of the Market Dominance Guys, Chris argues that it's the quality of the voice of the sales professional and the obvious ability to emote sincerity of the human being who is conducting the first seven seconds of the conversation with the prospect, which is really the key to market dominance. In our analogy, you are the surfer, and the scripts you ride, its purpose, with its first bits of information, is like a surfboard. And working with both a high-quality tandem of a script and a surfer or performer is the only way to achieve market dominance. But let's remember that the job of the surfboard is not to ride the wave, that's the surfer's job. And as I found out after many a spill, it simply cannot ride the wave without a competent surfer. Having a Martin Scorsese type written script alone doesn't guarantee success in your cold calling. That would be like chucking a thousand surfboards in the ocean and what would happen? Watch all day long and you will not have many very artistic or higher level wave riding experience from doing this. In spite of how expensive or expertly crafted your board is, you would just see many surfboards bobbing up and down at the pleasure of the waves. But certainly once in a while, maybe you see one of them kind of come in on a wave and stay on it for a while, but nothing really interesting happens. But if you put a competent surfer on the board who is now constrained by the confines of the surfboard, the script, and if their skill is high enough and if their courage is great enough and they know what they're doing with their balance, and within that script, they can truly express their personality and establish trust, all in the first seven seconds. Their tone of voice, their prosody, what they sound like, who they sound like, all factor in the emotion that the prospect feels, culminating in, does this sound like somebody I can trust? 
Hey, no one said market dominance would be easy. So welcome to this week's episode entitled Surf's Up, We All Stand Equal Before a Wave. This is what I asked Chris Voss at that dinner that I was you know, so kindly invited to, and he had a very clear answer. To begin to move the trust needle, you have seven seconds. So that's a decay curve. Yeah. So when you encounter somebody, there's this time of sort of ambiguity where they're neutral. And as you begin wasting their time, they begin trusting you. You know, if you don't achieve trust after a while, you go into the, the meh bucket, right? Meh. I don't really care about this person. So his point is you got seven seconds. And during those seven seconds, you have to do two things precisely. One thing is you must show this person clearly that you see the world through their eyes. You're on their side. You understand their situation and you're for them, not you. You can still be for you. I don't mean to them to exclusion of you, right? But you're for them. You're on their side. And so you can't be on somebody's side unless you know what their side is. You have to show them that you see the world their way. And then the second thing he said you need to do is establish with this person that you are competent to solve a problem that they have right now. And that's actually where the cold call comes in. What's so interesting about this whole equation, right? What, what happened to capitalism equation and why did sales become SG&A in, in the capitalist world, but now it becomes the manufacturing of trust? Well, you started off this conversation by saying, is it okay to tell a sales rep how to do their job? Uh, and the answer is, if a sales rep is, if they're, job is to manufacture trust across a subset of the market. So say I have a market of 10,000. So I have 10 sales reps. So each sales rep has got a thousand people, whether I assign them or not, doesn't make any difference, right? Yeah. So their, their burden, so to speak, that they need to carry is a thousand trust relationships. So really what I, what I'm asking them to do is to hold an initial thousand conversations if they can with their thousand and then have this process start to occur. The most important part is the thousand conversations, not the process. The process that leads to the sale is not irrelevant, but it's really close to irrelevant compared to the essential manufacturing process that needs to be run, which is some trust between every person in that thousand and that rep. And this is one of the reasons that sales teams should be relatively small when they go dominate markets, because it's, it's hard to find that many people in the world that folks would comfortably trust. You actually have to hire salespeople for trustability. Exactly the opposite again. <laughs> That's what's so fun about all this, right? Everything that we think about the classic salesperson, they're slick, they're smooth, they're fast talking, they're this, they're that, and they are the least trusted profession in the world other than uh, politicians who are simply salespeople of futures that they never have to deliver, right? They make Elon Musk look like a guy who's on the hook. Okay. So we have two kinds of salespeople people don't trust, politicians and salespeople. And... Here we, we have this paradigm that says, no, no, what we need to do to dominate a market and therefore stay in business. Let's go all, you know, always come back to, is there any safe place in business? There's only one, market dominance. 
If you dominate one market, you're pretty safe. If you dominate two, you're four times as safe. And if you dominate three, you're nine times as safe. So your safety factor goes with the square of the number of the markets that you dominate. So if you want to have a company that produces value for your heirs, so to speak, yeah. two generations from now, you need to dominate probably four or five markets. And then you're 25 times as safe and you take the business failure rate, which tends to run like failure in four years, right? And you go, oh, four, four times 25, that's 100 years, my business and I might be around 100 years from now, especially yeah. if we can establish a tradition of market dominance, because then you, you have the, at, uh, someone like GE who had dominance in, in, in capital, they had dominance in airplane engines, they had dominance in consumer goods and, you know, in a span of one generational leadership, right? Not even a couple of years, right? They've ended up selling off all those divisions and becoming fairly irrelevant. Yeah. They managed to make the classic mistake, which is they mistook the flow of revenue. The best way to get revenue at GE was to load up on GE Capital and say, go, 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 right? So GE Capital became this bigger and bigger part of it. And they lost their taste for dominating the real markets that they were in. And then having thrown the anchor through the bottom of the boat, they ended up doing a lot of bailing and it's kind of hard to get out of that situation. Uh, Actually, it's impossible to get out of it. It can't be done. Yeah, so, but in the general case, if, if you care about your company and you care about its future existence, you need to dominate. You come all the way down to how do I do that? Well, the unit of change, which in any business process or any process, the, real, the question at the core is what's the unit of change? What must change? And what are the inputs? What is the probability of change given the inputs and the magnitude of the inputs? So say I say the unit of change is, I don't know, the unit of change is that a square foot of floor gets clean. When the input is a broom or a vacuum cleaner or a dustpan or whatever, I apply the inputs. There's some probability of getting the change to occur. I multiply that all out. I figure out what the cost is of doing that. And I say, oh, well, if I want this big change from not dominating a market to dominating a market, for instance, yeah. I have to have this many units of change. And what are they? Well, the unit of change is the fact of someone who is a potential buyer in that market trusting a salesperson and they're on a path to trusting that salesperson more than they trust themselves. That is, if the point of purchase can't occur until the buyer trusts the salesperson more than they trust themselves because the buyer is conservative, why are they conservative? Because in B2B, you're putting your long game, your career on the line for something short, which is the purchase of something that solves one problem. So you've got to be pretty motivated to risk your career for a purchase. So the gentleman that you were talking about before, that you're talking with right before this conversation, very large multi-billion dollar company, probably fairly entrenched in the sales enablement, sales operations role, wants to trust the product, but doesn't trust it enough. Wants to trust you, but doesn't trust you enough. Right. The status quo, the devil I know is better than the devil I don't. Well, in this particular case, the product is sold, but there's another sale that needs to be made. So this is a big customer of ours. They consume a million and a half dials a year. They're a serious big customer, but their paradigm is the ancient paradigm, which is the salesperson makes the decision as to what tools they use and what techniques they use. Yeah. yeah. Given that, it doesn't really matter if he trusts me. Because there's no way that, he's, that they're going to change their paradigm until they change their paradigm, right? So our problem becomes to find a part of that particular company 
that is in enough trouble that they will risk some senior managers, a general manager, CEO of one of those units, will risk their career on a new sales paradigm, Mm -hmm. which they're free to do. It's not like this is a religion to them. It's just a habit, right? The old sales paradigm, which is the salesperson does whatever they want as long as they produce the number, everything's cool. And we only start to manage them when they don't produce the number. That's the old one. And we manage them. Effectively, it's called managing someone out just because of modern kind of restrictions around firing people, right? That's the old paradigm, but that paradigm doesn't allow you to dominate markets. And the reason it doesn't allow you to dominate markets is you can't manufacture trust as fast in that paradigm as a competitor can by using an alternative technique, which is talk to everyone. That's the real problem. The real problem is that if you want to be in the innovation economy, which means you've got to bring new stuff to market, which brings into play the chasm, right? So if you can't just sit there and stand pat on your old stuff, but you've got to go, you've got to do new stuff because there's disruptors coming in because software is eating the world. Right? So software will eventually eat you no matter what it is that you do. <laughs> the car industry, everything software would eat the car industry. Imagine that, right? And yet software ate the car industry. Well, look at, uh, look at Siebel, right? And, uh, and Salesforce, right? I mean, there was a time when I first got into sales where Siebel was the dominant player in the marketplace, right? Nobody else was even close. And in a matter of a couple of years, this upstart Salesforce kind of usurped them from this heavy integration, heavy software piece uh, for sales automation software. And before that, it was Brock. Remember, Brock was the big one. And then Siebel came, and then now Salesforce, and Salesforce has been able to continually innovate, continue to throw new things at it to maintain their position. Connect and Sell allows your sales reps to talk to more decision makers in 90 minutes than they would in a week or more of conventional dialing. Your reps can finally be 100% focused on selling since all of their CRM data entry and follow-up scheduling is fully automated within Connect and Sell's powerful platform. Your team's effectiveness will skyrocket by using Connect and Sell's teleprompter capability as they'll know exactly what to say during critical conversations. Visit connectandsell.com. listening to the market dominance guys with your host chris beal of connect and sell and Corey frank of uncommon pro yeah this happens over and over whatever's heavy gets displaced by something lighter the definition of software is it's lighter it's lighter it's more liquid it moves faster and it opens up possibilities at the margin business model possibilities. Salesforce's business model that was so radical was you could actually try it for free and there was no install. I switched from Oracle to Salesforce in about a week. Million dollar Oracle CRM implementation. Been going on and going on as part of this big ERP thing that we were doing. And this guy, Kevin Stoffel, who worked for me as my inside sales guy, a little team of four people, five people, whatever. He came to me one day and said, you know, I know we're doing this Oracle thing. I know that we're really working hard at it. I know we have this big investment going on. Is it okay if I try something else from my team because I'm tired of waiting? Yeah. And I said, well, it's Kevin, I know you. 
you wouldn't be asking this question unless you already tried something else and it worked. So what is it? He said, okay, this is called Salesforce. And I said, did you put data in it? And he said, absolutely. Is it delivering value? He said, yeah. I said, you want to show it to me? He says, yeah. He shows me a running CRM that his team's using every day and has been using for a week because he could upload a spreadsheet into it. Million dollar Oracle implementation gets turned off immediately, right? That was in the unit of change. The unit of change was you could try it for free because Salesforce was softer software than, than Oracle. Oracle was hard software. We had to run it on our machines. We had to integrate it with this and that. The programmers got involved, project managers. Imagine a little company, really a tiny company, right? $42 million a year company with more than 20 million a year of that being from cutting two Goldmaster CDs a year and sending them to Germany. Needing to go through a year of consulting and integration and whatever. And here this guy comes along, this unassuming kid from Iowa, Dubuque of all places. If you can imagine somebody coming out of Dubuque at doing this. And he goes, uh, well, I just tried this thing over here and it seems to work pretty well. Boom, done. And then what is the next unit to change? Somebody, me, who believes in that company's ability to deliver in a wider range of circumstances. So I go and start finish line floors. Do I go build an ERP system? No, I took Salesforce. I spent, and I logged this, I spent 16 hours and 33 minutes working on Salesforce in order to make it into a full blown ERP system for, for a floor finishing company, including <laughs> data gathering from the field and pictures coming in and analysis and the whole bit, right? So softer software, because it was even softer in another way, that it was configurable and programmable, and I didn't need program, blah, 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 ate something else. It ate an ERP system that I never bought, which I probably would have had to buy or build. Software eats the world because of its liquidity and flexibility and ability to have short cycle times to value. Look at our company. Our cycle time to value is the shortest in the history of business one day. You go from not touching it to at this moment, at this very instant. They say, listen, Chris, I've done all this work. I've had all these conversations. I'm still not getting market dominance. And you could say no, but you could look at this different view, Corey. You're, it looks like a scatter chart. looks like a Jackson Pollock painting, and it needs to be more focused on a particular market. You think you're having conversations that are concentrated or that all conversations are created equal. The conversation that has greater atomic weight when they are focused on a particular market. So you have a list problem, Corey, right? Right. Uh, as an example, right? Or, or I could say, you know, we've analyzed the, these conversations, the cold ones in particular, which are oddly the most important because you only have seven seconds once. That's, right. You have one shot to move the needle. Now, fortunately, if you fail, as long as you don't fail in a, in a memorable way, God, you're not memorable, <laughs> then you can go take another shot. But it's effectively a cold call, even though it'll be in this follow-up list. As long as you don't fail in a memorable way. That's great. Yeah. yeah, I mean, thank God salespeople are not memorable. Right? But if you fail in a memorable way, when you have the follow-up, you could have a problem. But you, so it kind of comes down to, are you talking to a list that makes sense? That's your 808 dials here. When you talk to them, to those individuals, do you talk to them in a way in which you establish that you are on their side, that you see the world their way, and that you're competent to solve a problem they have right now? 
And this is where the, this whole different anatomy of a cold call comes about, which I, we really need to get into. Because that's, I mean, I keep saying it's interesting. To me, it's just fascinating that we're at a point in history where the capitalist revolution is over because there's no longer any need for capital to do the classic thing we did in business, which is make factories. Software is eating the world. Innovations and the pace of flow of innovations is up, but the, the, the process of taking those innovations to market has gotten more difficult rather than easier. And if you can take an innovation to market as a whole product and dominate that market, you'll not only live to fight another day, but you might be able to dominate another market. And if you have the ability to dominate markets as a core capability of your company, then you can do anything you want in business, including acquiring other companies and all this other stuff, right? Because you own this innovation engine, the real hard part, which is taken to market. But when you come right down to it, you have to manufacture units of trust. And to do that, you have seven seconds. And within those seven seconds, you have to do two things. And one of those things requires in the traditional paradigm, it requires guesswork. And the guess that we traditionally make is that the problem we solve is the problem that is on this prospect's mind at this moment. When Chris Voss said right now to me that evening, when he said, you need to show this person that you're competent to solve a problem they have right now, it was the words right now that blew my brain up. Because I just suddenly realized, wait a minute, the problem this person has right now is me. And it turns out the secret to the whole damned thing is for me to actually say I am the problem and offer a solution to the problem yeah. that is me. Yeah. Yeah. And that moves the trust needle every time. And this is where our customers, when we teach them this, get confused because they then go back to the traditional model and say, yeah, but did it produce a meeting? And that's not the point. The point is, the point is 103 million, right? That what was I said, 100 and this little test drive here, right? At 103 or 108, I think it was, million bits of information, most of which were not in the words. This is the other part that's hard for people to understand is within those seven seconds, I can only get out so many words. I can probably say 40 words, right? So let's try to see how many words there are. I know I'm in an interruption, that's five. Can I have 27 seconds to tell you why I called? That's 11. So 16 words are emitted during that time. So those 16 words average, in this case, I think six or seven characters each. So 16 times six times eight, right? 16 times six times eight. So that's only about 768 bits of information. Yeah. That's not very much, right? 768 bits. And yet those 16 words took seven seconds. And in those seven seconds, there are 140,000 bits of information that I've emitted. Well, all the rest of it's tone of voice, it's prosody, it's what do I sound like? It's who do I sound like? It's do I sound like somebody you can trust? So this brings down the talent issue to something that's really people don't think about, which is the quality of the voice 
I'll call it the obvious sincerity of the human being who is having that first seven second conversation is the key to market dominance. The script's purpose, the 768 bits of information, its role is to be like a surfboard. The job of the surfboard is not to ride the wave. Throw surfboards in the ocean all day long and you will not have very many artistic wave riding experiences. Surfboards just bob around and do whatever they do and every once in a while, one of them kind of comes in on a wave and stays on it for a while. Nothing very interesting happens. You put a surfer on the surfboard, constrained by the surfboard, right? They can't walk around anywhere else on the water. They can only walk around in that little tiny, little floaty thing that they got underneath them and a fairly small amount of that. But if their skill is high and their courage is there, you know what they're doing within that script that is the surfboard, they can express their personality. Well, let me talk about that for a second. I love, first of all, I love that analogy. The script is your surfboard. The surfer is the tone and the sincerity and who wields that tool. Yes. So James, what's the gentleman's name? James Wahlberg. He does the videos. I I love his Thornburg. Thornburg, right? And I love his breakthrough script, but his value prop that he delivers that I think that's where the hiccup is because his tone is exceptional. Right? Yes. Very empathetic. His pacing is, is a master class. His body language just gets into it, right? I mean, he doesn't have 100 uh, calls, right? He has 100 call. He has one call a, a, 100 times. I mean, he is just the Iceman. He does not leave his wingman. I love it. But it just seems that, far be it for me, I don't know. I, I respect the hell out of him for doing it, but seems like he could use some help on his on that that initial big idea that seems to be where he's missing i think a lot of his success now granted it's not the sexiest product but i still think that's irrelevant yeah well it, it's a pure trust product too i mean it's got the issue that it's, it's a funny kind of software right yeah i'm going to do this analysis he is reluctant to talk about a breakthrough because of his own personality i've actually taken him through the entire messaging workshop and this is what I do a lot of now is messaging workshops. And the more sophisticated somebody is, the less likely they are to like the, the message that we come up with. Yeah. I think, it's still thinking. I think he's close. I think really he's, he's so close. He's close. But I'm happy to have him out there, you know, amusing masses, right? Yeah. It, it works like crazy. But it, it is true that the surfboard constrains the performance but I'd rather have a master surfer on a shitty surfboard than the other way, than me on the best surfboard in the world. You know, you put me out there on a wave and you're not going to get much because <laughs> I won't even get up on the board, right? Today's show is also brought to you by UncommonPro.com. Selling a big idea to a skeptical customer or investor is one of the hardest jobs in business. So when it's really time to go big, you need an uncommon methodology to convince others that your ideas will truly change their world. Through a modern and innovative sales and scripting tool set, we offer a guiding hand to ambitious leaders in their quest to reach market dominance. It's time to get uncommon with UncommonPro.com. Never miss an episode. Go to any of your favorite podcast venues and search for Market Dominance Guys or go to marketdominanceguys.com and subscribe.